Hey, welcome in to the Craig Houston podcast, man. I got an honor, honorable guest here today, Andrew Davis. Been looking forward to this conversation, and it's going to be, I think, one of those type of conversations that's going to knock your socks off, and you're going to be floored. Andrew has a wealth of knowledge that I'm looking to knock, uh, get a lot of this information out of him and understand a lot more behind the scenes on how his entrepreneurship and how he goes about living his life kind of under the, on a lower or less means but has exponential growth in a lot of ways that people will probably be floored by. So, Andre, welcome into the show. Oh, yeah. No, I'm stoked. And uh, you make me sound smart, and I'm not. So thanks a lot. <laughs> no, no expectation, everybody. No expectations. Well, don't, don't let him fool you. Don't let him fool you at all. This this guy is is is, is a wizard behind the scenes. If, if you let him fool you, you're going to be out for a treat. So, Andrew, tell the people a little bit about yourself. So uh, obviously my name is Andrew Davis. I have a very interesting world into entrepreneurship. I basically tried starting on YouTube, that didn't work. I built out a website and then I sort of found my niche in comic book investing. And I am a traditional investor as well as an alternative investor, primarily playing in collectibles with a focus mostly on comics right now. I've dabbled in other stuff, but I run an eBay business and uh, I make a good side hustle out of this and I live below my means and I'm sure there's a million questions and I'm just throwing all these things out there to get everybody's brains a little spinning here. So let's start, let's start with the boring stuff, right? Let's, let's get, we're going to come back to the collectibles and the comic books and things of that nature, right? Andrew, when I talked to you last time, we first got to know each other. You told me you was a traditional investor uh, and you, 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 call, you labeled yourself as boring in that sense, right? So Tell the audience why you considered yourself being a boring uh, traditional investor in some in some means. So I am a, a traditional investor. So I'll define what a traditional investor is. Um, traditional investing is stock markets, bonds, putting money into a U.S. Treasury bond, putting it into a CD, a savings account. You know, if you have an interest-bearing account in your bank, that is traditional investing. Um, if you're involved in real estate. That typically is traditional investing. If you're involved in index funds, um, that's traditional. Now, I am very boring because I pick very basic companies that have been around forever in the stock market. And then I pick companies that produce a dividend and I collect my dividend check, whether that's every quarter, every year, monthly. And I'm not looking for anything fancy, but I'm just looking for income to be returned back to me. And I don't do anything fancy. I'm not looking for like some crazy altcoin and cryptocurrency. I'm looking for things that typically return capital and have return capital. So Coca-Cola is a great example. I don't think Coca-Cola is going to mind me using their name. They are a traditional company that has been around for almost 100 years. They are boring as boring can be. Great company, but they're not doing anything that's like a high-risk flyer. So that's why I define myself as being boring. I am, I guess, blue chip stock, which is sort of just run of the mill, basic, and you know it's always gonna be there and it's like a stable of America. Yeah, so that's that's interesting that you started with Coca-Cola because uh, a lot of my audience they like to talk about blue chip stocks as well, too. And Coca-Cola right now, in the times that we're dealing with a lot of recessionary pressure, they are basically one of the ones that's actually doing quite well as a defensive stock against all the uh, inflationary prices that we're seeing, especially as they're passing prices on to consumers. So sometimes those blue chip stocks are defensive. And like you said, especially when they're giving you a, um, a dividend on top of that, they're going up in price in share price. But at the same time, you're still getting nice percentages back to you, kick back to you. And well. I'll be very honest, Coca-Cola is a 
fascinating company. There's another company called Monster. Right. Monster is the energy drink company. And one of the things about Monster is that Coca-Cola owns 20% of Monster. Mm-hmm. And so that's something that people don't understand as well is that Coca-Cola, I mean, it sort of defeats my argument, but they are not a boring company, but they're a stable of America. You can't lose on Coca-Cola. You just can't. You know, the, the sayings when they first came into market, um, they were at, I think, like $36 a share. And if you had one share of Coca-Cola, it would be worth about $4.7 million today if you bought it back in the day when Coca-Cola first came out on the market. So that just gives you an idea that over less than 100 years, that one share due to stock splits and dividends and growth and a variety of other stuff would be worth like almost $4.7 million, which is ludicrous to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you're right. It's a nice value in there. It was actually interesting because uh, as we get into this a little bit here, uh, they they had a lot of memes going around on Elon Musk as he purchased uh, Twitter. And one of the ones was about Coke, how he couldn't even afford to buy Coke out if he really wanted to. Because Coke is worth more than his uh his 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 valuation of net worth today. So you're right. Coca Cola has been around and it's been doing things for uh, quite a ways that a lot of people can never uh, get tired of. And people are not going to stop buying Coca Cola in no time soon or any Coke product for that matter in any time soon. So it's a great defense mechanism and it's a great investment. So okay, so traditional investing is where you started at, and basically to this kind of like break it down for people on. Why you decide to go that route? Because it's, it's it's it it is boring in the sense of a lot of people because it's not the, it don't get the sexy name of giving a hundred percent returns or three hundred percent returns. And, that's, that's not true though. Okay, go ahead, tell me. Okay, so I have gotten in Apple three hundred and fifty percent rate of return. I've gotten in um, Bath and Body Works and Victoria's Secret. Um, Victoria's Secret, I've gotten a 400% rate of return. And Bath and Body Works, I have a 320% rate of return. But I bought L Brands before they had their stocks put at $9 a share. So all of a sudden, you can get those nice big returns. That's complete BS. Now, you also have to understand, though, what type of investor you are and when you're buying. The way you get your rate of returns to be... 200, 300% is where we're going right now, which is going into a deep recession. Okay, you don't get that rate of return when Apple is trending at 160. You wait till it hits 80 bucks a share or hits 120 a share. And all of a sudden, if it's a good company and it's beat up because the entire world's messed up, that's when you get your 100, 200, 300% you know, rate of return. So I've gotten really good rate of returns in the stock market because I have waited very patiently for when a company is artificially suppressed. Back in 2020, every company was beat up in February when COVID was hitting. Everything was on sale. I bought a company called Texas Roadhouse for $32. Texas Roadhouse right now is sitting at 86 bucks. That Texas Roadhouse returned to its position in nine months after February. So in November of 2020, it was trending and trading at almost 90 a share. So, so, so I mean, because that's the whole thing though, is that I waited. Now, where you really make your money though, in the stock market is if you pick good dividend stocks. If you have a stock that has a 5% dividend over 20 years, you will get 100% of your money back plus the equity. And so if you understand saying, look, 
I want to go into how I invest. I invest as a fixed income investor, where I invest primarily only in dividend companies or companies that have temporarily suppressed their dividend. So I picked up some Disney shares a while back. Disney doesn't pay a dividend. They will get back to paying a dividend probably in the next year and a half. So I don't mind not having a company suspend their dividend if they're going to get back to paying it at some point, because that's how I get my return. And I'm also looking 20, 30 years down the road, because then there's going to get a point when I'm 65 and now I might be pulling in $15,000 every single month and just in dividend money. So it's all about how you want to get your return, but there's good growth stocks that will produce good money. But it's also the idea that most people are really bad at it, picking them. (laughs) That's that's fascinating because right you're you're talking about compound annual growth uh with these dividend stocks to build out your fixed income, which that is a lot. That's why a lot of people are don't have the patience that, like you say, they don't they don't pay attention to paying buying good stocks that's gonna keep on growing and going further. Now, so we let's talk about Disney for a second, because you did say that you got into Disney while they suspended the dividend. Um, a lot of stocks uh suspended the dividend during the uh, pandemic, and some of them are starting to roll back in. Currently, what's your what's your estimations on what's going to happen with Disney based on what you've seen with Netflix? Oh, I think Disney's going to be fine. I think Netflix is going to be fine. I think it's all a bunch of hype. I think people don't understand the entire are crying, complaining. Hopefully, hopefully I'm back. Hopefully I'm back. Um. People, as I was saying, people are complaining about price hikes and all that stuff. Back in the 1990s, people were spending $37 on average for cable. That same amount of money is $69 in today's money. So back, if we were to put for inflation and how prices have increased, people were paying almost 70 bucks in the 1990s for cable. And so if Netflix raises their price to $20, that's not going to be a factor. If Disney raises their price to 20 bucks, that's not going to be a factor because people are going to pay it. Nobody cares about that. But I think it is that I think people are just panicking. And I think people are saying, I'm leaving Netflix. I'm doing this. Yet they're all jumping on a bandwagon. And I would actually like to see who's really leaving Netflix. And people are saying, oh, Netflix is also going to do a lot of cheap content. BS again. The reason why Netflix got attention is that they had must-see TV. The Sopranos were must-see TV. So unless these companies are going to create shows that are must-see TV, then there's no reason for anybody to pick up their subscription services. But I highly doubt that when people leave Disney and Netflix, and we've already seen it, Netflix in the next 18 months is going to have 10 shows that are must-see, and they're going to get all those people back. And if you're an investor in Netflix and you're an investor in Disney, you know, it's both those stocks are going to go right back up, just like that. And I'll explain what Paramount has done in conjunction. Um, Paramount has Knuckles with Sonic the Hedgehog. That's coming. It's going to be a great show. And they also did the COVID South Park episode. That You can only see that stuff with South Park on Paramount. That is must-see TV. And so once these companies create content, they're going to be just fine. And everybody who's not investing in them, you're going to miss out big time. That's all I'm gonna say. So now the Disney part is 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 fascinating to me because I agree with you completely about the Disney part. The the intellectual property that Disney has rolling out over the next 18 to 24 months 
is, is stuff that, that, that they delayed on purpose during the pandemic because they know how many people really want to see their stuff and they want to get you back in the theaters. But not only in the theaters, they want to make sure it's going their streaming services up and running at full throttle like they are right now. And I think that's going to be a highlight for their intellectual property. But when it comes to the Netflix intellectual property, you don't think that a lot of these companies taking their, their content back from Netflix and, and streaming it themselves, it's not a problem for Netflix? Yeah, see, I don't think it is. I, I, I really don't because there's still all this content up on Netflix. And a lot of these companies still want their stuff up on Netflix because they still need the distribution. They need the money in a lot of ways. And, and that's the whole thing is that I think that, you know, they, they, they still need it because they want to be everywhere. Furthermore, Netflix has also gone into their own content creation mode. And so at this stage, it's all about creating content. I mean, look, Netflix had Cowboy Bebop. They had Jupiter's Legacy. And you could argue that, well, Cowboy Bebop and Jupiter's Legacy were both disasters. Netflix had Sense8. And so Netflix has all this intellectual property as well that they own, too. So I don't really, I mean, they have, I think, like, Anne with an E. I think Netflix has that they're producing. Netflix did a series of unfortunate events. And I think people forget that Netflix has a big bullpen to pull from, just like Disney and just like every other, I guess, IP company at this point. So I'm not really that concerned, not to mention that Netflix owns Miller World. So that's Mark Miller's comic division. And if you're an independent creator, why wouldn't you want to pitch a show to Netflix versus other places? I mean, you want to pitch to all of them. And if Hulu turns you down, Netflix is open, Paramount's open. I mean, you might not want to go to Disney because then Disney owns it. But if you go to Paramount and it's a streaming type thing, you know, there you go. So that's kind of where I think Netflix is going to be fine, where there's enough content and enough IP. And also, a lot of these companies do stay stagnant. I mean, I don't own Disney Plus. I don't own Disney Plus because I'm out of money with subscription services. I have so many as it sits that I do not need another one. And so I'm picking and choosing what I want precisely. And so that's kind of where I'm at as an individual. But I think they're going to be fine. I think, again, I think it's all hype because I think people just want to beat down Netflix. So when you, uh, so the a la carte, the a la carte take is, it's true, right? Everybody has probably more than three streaming services that they're actually using. Um, and that's to me is the reason why I'm like, you know, at this point in time, owning, owning, cutting the cord is almost like owning cable or satellite at this point in time. Um, and to me, I feel like that's where I'm, I'm disconnected with Netflix at that point, which I don't disagree with your stance on it because I think Netflix would have actually still had a, a positive active user growth if they didn't have to cut the subscriptions to Russia based on the invasion of Ukraine. So I do agree with you that it's, it, it seems synthetic at this point in time a little bit, but at the same time, I just have a hard time seeing past the trees of where Netflix is going to grow at. They're, they're focused. Like to me, I keep on thinking <laughs> at this point in time too, as well. Right. So just, but let me, let me give, let me give, give my insight. So everybody told me, don't invest in Apple. I invested in Apple when it was 125 and then it rose up to 480. Then they had a stock, but now it's at 160. Mm -hmm. So I made a huge amount of money on Apple. Again, I've made like a 320%, you know, position on Apple. You said, that's a horrible idea, Andrew. You're wrong. 
People said, don't put money into L brands when it was $9 a share. It's going to go down to six. People are like, that's wrong. They had a stock split between Bath and Body Works and Victoria's Secret where both Bath and Body Works split at $53 and um, Victoria's Secret dropped at $48. And that stock split was counted at 78 I think $2, which means that the stock split was actually hot, valued higher. People were like, don't put money into AT&T. And I have Warner Brothers Discovery, and that's going to do good over time because every streaming service is beat up, and AT&T is going to return back to probably around 28 to 32 in the next 24 months. And so I am very much a contrary investor. When a building's on fire, I run into the building because I've had all these experiences that I've invested in companies and in the stock market. And I look at them and I say, look, these companies have real value and real money in them. Let me throw more money into it because I've always done well. And, and, and it's not just one, two, three, four times. It's almost 10 times now. And so in my maybe six years as a, I guess, true and true investor, I've done very well when people said, you're completely wrong. So what's your price target on Netflix in 12 months? Oh, I think it would be 320 to 350. Okay. Very, very easy. Very easy. And I, I think I think um in, in 24 months they're gonna be four four twenty to four fifty. Very easy. I think I think I think a lot of people are not gonna expect that rate of return and it's gonna go like that. It's gonna be the same thing with a bunch of other stocks. So do you think that's uh with Netflix actually doing lower tier uh subscription with advertising or no? Oh, I think I think actually without that, I think if they actually go lower tier with advertising, I think that's going to be a disaster. Why? I think, I think, I think that 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 is the worst position to take. So, so you think just keeping the subscriptions where they're at and not touching them is the better option than? I actually think raising the prices makes the most sense. I mean, it works for Amazon. You could wait, even if you the the attrition for people actually leaving their subscription is really not that high. So I can I see your point there too, but I feel like they're really leaning towards this advertising. I I think it's a mistake. I, I think I think that Netflix has to say we're Netflix. This is how we do our business. You, the consumer, don't tell us how we run our business, and we don't need to take this thing because we're giving you a premium product, and you don't have a choice but to accept the premium product. And that that and it's funny, but think about it. What a powerful stance that says, no, 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 we don't do advertising. We're not Hulu. We're not Paramount Plus. We're not Crunchyroll with free advertising. We you pay for our content because we're that damn good. Because that is an act of a company being confident and saying we're that damn good that you pay for our content. You have to buy in, and there's a gate, and there's not a lower gate. I, I'm with you. I which I think it's. I, I think it's gonna be because I'll, I'll throw it back to you. Right now, there's no free advertising with Disney, right? Free advertising with Disney. Is, is there? Is there? Is there a lower tier with Disney or no? Lower tier with Disney. I don't even think Disney's considering it. Um, but you it know, is- Disney, but Disney owns ESPN. Plus, and they own the Hulu uh, Plus and all that stuff, too. So they're still bringing in advertising revenue. They're just not doing it on the Disney Plus side of the house. 
And, and so that's the thing in which that Disney's a brand. Disney's a premium brand. When you see Disney on something, it's Disney. You know what I mean? It's Netflix. It creates a value. And when you bring in advertising, it cheapens the value. And that's my whole problem, why I think it's such a bad idea. I get why they want to do it. It works for Hulu. But, you know, I don't view Hulu as a Netflix. I don't view Hulu as a Disney. You know, it's the idea that I have a subscription to IWTV. They don't have advertising on IWTV. I feel like the advertising cheapens the brand and also creates that you have now changed your motto. You've changed your business plan. And you're now being disingenuous to the entire nature of what Netflix was. So everything that you said, let's go back to the opening. You say you're not, you, I made you sound smarter than what you are, but you're you're proving it already out the, out the gate that we're accurate on how intelligent you are when it comes to this, especially this subject matter, right? Because I agree with you on the advertising perspective, but I feel like Amazon, not Amazon, Netflix feels this. I think they're thinking of all the password sharing that they're trying to crack down on. I think they're looking at how many people they're going to lose off, off subscriptions when they do that and how many people is going to get turned off. So they are trying to figure out another way of actually keeping those people at a lower tier price model that will at least allow for them to, you know, bring an average revenue per user higher than they actually have before. Look, I I, I get it. And, and look, you know what it is? I mean, when you start advertising, there's real money in it. And I completely get it where the, the number is that Hulu's advertising model definitely brings in more money, but also it turns away certain content. I could tell you for a fact that, you know, if all of a sudden, I mean, I don't know, like, I don't know what the deal is with, with Joe Rogan and Spotify, but I don't think there's advertisements in the middle of those episodes. From my understanding, if there was, I would be turned off. Even on the free model, I would be turned off because it breaks up and it ruins the content. They know so, that. So I didn't know that part about Joe Rogan. So his content on Spotify don't have advertisers in the middle I don't of it? Th- I don't think it does. I think it might have it before. And it has it. And the reason why Spotify is paying him is that they want him to be exclusive. I don't think they care about the advertising money. They want him to bring his entire following over to Spotify to convert on other elements of it. And so I don't think there's many advertisements. I don't think it's broken up. It's like three hours of Rogan, right? They are paying him for exclusivity. They're not paying him to advertise on a show. Spotify is not making money. In the same way, they're making their money with Rogan for exclusivity, and this is the only place you can get it. And, and, and so, like, my whole thing with, with advertising is, though, is you're going to bring up content. I mean, I have Peacock, right? And I could tell you that I'm watching Law & Order today, and every 15 minutes or every 12 minutes, there's an advertisement, and it breaks up a sort of a scene. But also, I'm paying less. And, 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 but I'm not going to go pay more for uh, peacock premium because i'm lazy and money's tight and, and and again i'm running out of money on my subscription service and my hobbies and and what what streaming stuff i want so i'll take a lower tier if that's my case but it also ruins and changes the content experience differently i guess for for lack of a better word oh uh, you're right I, I i agree with you i agree with you so what so uh, let's, I mean, we're still, you said AT&T, so that kind of leads me right into my next part of this whole Netflix thing, which is separate, but at the same time, kind of together. Um, broadband, like broadband service is still getting higher, right? So I think that's affecting a lot of people's uh, stance on how many streaming services they're actually going to take. 
think AT&T is going to cut that model to make it a little bit more affordable for people? The 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 what model? Uh the wire the wireless internet broadband model. <sighs> yeah, see, you know what it is? I don't think cell phones are going out of business anytime soon. I don't know what just happened. Yeah, no, I, as I was stating, I don't think cell phones are going out anytime soon. Uh, I think that wireless isn't going out anytime soon. I think that, you know, I think cable is going to be evolving. Um, But, but I, I mean, I can tell you that I'm going to have a cell phone. I mean, I got my iPhone and I use Verizon. And so I think AT&T is going to be perfectly fine because WhatsApp is great and other apps are fine, but I don't think they're replacements for me calling up somebody. I mean, and, and I can tell you when I have a problem and I call up my brokerage every month when I have a real question, I had a real question about a dividend and I want to call up my brokerage and I'm not calling them up using, you know, uh, whatever Facebook's method is. That's true. And, and, true. and, 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 and I, I mean, I could tell you, I mean, it's a safety concern too. I mean, I mean, you know, we're, we're both guys. If you're a girl, I mean, having your phone around, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I don't know how many people know how, how many safety features an iPhone has, but an iPhone is a very, very safe, pro, safe, I guess, safety tool, but for lack of a better word, where there's a million things you could do on your iPhone. And guess what? The police can find you without you speaking on your iPhone. Yeah, that's true. So I don't think that that people think, oh, cell phones and Verizon and AT&T and all that stuff's going out of business. No, no, no. That's just increasing. Not to mention 5G. 5G is not pertaining necessarily to cell phones, which AT&T and Verizon and a bunch of other companies are involved in. 5G is gaming. 5G is everything. It's just an expansion of the network and how fast something is. Okay, so let's 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 get into your um, collectibles, right? Mm. Uh, tell the audience about your collectible in investing. Or a little bit of as much as you can share. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So um, uh, I started out as a comic book fan before and i didn't start out reading comic books i actually read graphic novels because i'm a big anime manga fan and right across from the manga section in barnes and noble is the comic book section and the graphic novel section so i didn't know what a comic book was until i was 16 and then and then fast forward i really got into just collecting a bunch of cool collectibles they looked awesome and what wound up happening in my world is that um, i'm in college and I got really into comics. I was reading comics, buying comics, collecting comics. And I didn't have any money. And I needed beer money. And I needed money for comic books the next month. So I went through my collection, found a book, sold it for 120 bucks. was like, sweet. I have beer money and I have comic book money for the next two months. How um, much? And then, what were you saying? What did the book cost you? Uh, the book cost me 20 bucks. I sold it for 120 You sold it for 120 Okay. So, 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 so now I'm like, cool, I'm good. Thought nothing of it, stoked, you know, liked the book, but didn't love it that much. Had, had some beer money, had some comic money, was good for a while. Then I needed money again. And then fast forward, I did it again, again, thought nothing of it. And then fast forward five, six times, just you start saying, hey, there's a pattern here. And then you start realizing certain books are worth more money and you start saying, let me go buy that book because I think I'm going to be able to sell it for double, triple, or four times what it's worth. And then that's where all this started. And then 
all of a sudden you start figuring out and then you start finding places to buy this stuff from. And you start saying, oh, I see that book behind the shelf. How much does that book cost? 20 bucks? Okay, I'm in. And so then this is what started happening. And meanwhile, while all this was going on, I really started dabbling in eBay, where I was actually selling Legos on eBay. And so that's how I got started selling on eBay, where I was selling these $2 minifigs for 10 bucks a pop. That's a big business of selling Legos on eBay. So I'll, I'll prove my, I'll show you exactly what I was selling, everybody. Uh, got this little thing right here. Just, eh, it's being difficult. Sorry, everybody. For, for, for. <laughs> so that happened. Um, I think nothing got broken. So it's uh, selling basically something like this, still in its package. So this is a Lego minifig. Right. And so there was these blue and yellow ones and certain ones were worth money. And you could tell on the barcode what was what. And so I was able to go to Target and I would legitimately sit on the floor in the Lego aisle in Target and go through finding all the good ones. So like I found like 10 cheerleader Legos that, that were two bucks a pop that were going for 10 to 12 bucks on eBay. And I was about 98% accurate in selling it. So now all of a sudden I got 10 cheerleaders. You're selling 10 cheerleaders that cost you 20 bucks for 120. Okay, wait a minute. You said it was the barcode. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, man, wait, hold on. How did how did you figure out it was a thing by the bar barcode that was actually the value of a Lego higher than others? So 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 the first two sets had different barcodes on each of them, right? Oh, man. Then I was going into, because I was part of all these Lego groups. And so now what, what what started happening is that you're part of all these Lego groups and um, you share information with each other. And somebody's like, oh, yeah, here's all the barcodes for all these different Lego things. Then you go on eBay and you say, okay, which ones are going for good money and which ones are actually selling? And you match the barcode that's in this group. I print out the sheet, bring the sheet to Target, and you just match it up. And you go in and, and that's how you function. Wow. You reverse engineer Legos. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me explain. That idea ran out very quickly within six months. Because Lego really caught on saying, wow, we're stupid. We made ourselves have a lot more work by creating a different barcode for each of these products. They then, for season three, did a universal barcode so that it was completely random. Which, which you would have thought they would already be doing. That is, wow, that's astronomical. So, so then I stopped selling those Lego things, and then I got selling comics and other stuff and trading cards and Pokemon cards. And then pretty much fast forward in college, because I was only dabbling a little bit, I really started to sell comic books heavy. And then fast forward, you know, really four years ago, I really kicked off my eBay business with everything that I learned and understand. And I cater to a specific niche where I cater to what is known as bad girl art. A bad, bad girl art is the idea. I'm sorry, what were we saying? A bad girl art. Bad girl art is the idea that um, it's sexy girls um, in sexy poses, sort of bras, panties, swimsuits, looking hot, looking a little fierce. Um, and it's typically, you know, provocative. I'll, I'll have a picture of something. And don't worry, everybody. It's perfectly kosher. 
this would be considered to be bad girl art. Okay. So th this is this is bad girl art. Um, and, and I'll come back to this book. Why this book is more valuable than the book that is different than this book, but similar. Um, and I'll explain why. So I cater to that, and typically I cater to certain artists. And I cater to limited edition books. So that book has 200 copies printed of it. Mm. Um, and I cater to that type of book. Because if it's limited and it has a particular artist, it looks a certain way. And then there's only 200 copies of it. Naturally, it's going to fetch more money. Naturally. Okay, so, uh, man. Okay, so how did you figure out that that should be the, the, the genre that you're identifying? And as you're as you're doing this collecting and reselling eBay biz, so I, I mean I'm a comic collector, and what started happening is that you start picking up books, and you start realizing, okay, this book that I bought for four dollars is only worth five dollars now, but then you pick up one of these books. So obviously, th this book I picked up six months ago, but all of a sudden I'll pick up a book like this, and it's limited to two hundred, and then you say, oh snap, that's going for one twenty. The cover looks cool. This thing looks hot. It looks fun. And oh, snap, it's going for real money. And again, after four or five times of that, you're like, okay, what is this doing? I also happen to be a fan of that. And then you start realizing very quickly that a particular artist did that cover. And so then you start following that artist. You type that artist up on eBay and you're like, oh, snap, their book is going for $300. And this is only limited to 100 copies. Oh, wow, this is kind of crazy. Oh, this book is going for $400 and it's limited to 500 copies. Oh, and this book came out 15 years ago when this company was brand new. And then you're like, okay, this artist gets money. When it's a limited edition, it's worth more money. When it's a particular subject matter and when it looks sexy, you know, there, there you go. And so I let the market sort of determine what actually works and what doesn't. And then it niched me down. And then obviously I like that company and I sell a lot of this company, which is called Zenoscope's books. And so I broke it down into a science and, and I'm more than happy to explain it. So there are four things that dictate a comic's worth. Um, one is did a major event. Uh, now you just, you there. Oh, 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 I'm just making sure I didn't do something wrong here. Uh, oh, oh, <laughs> I'm scared. Not, not, not cool, man. Not cool. <laughs> So, so the the first thing that dictates um a comic's worth is that did a major event happen in the book? Did a new character get introduced to that book? Did a character die in that book, or was it like a first appearance of a character? Something like that is typically the first thing. The second thing that dictates it is who is the artist on the book or who is the artist on the cover. So the cover can absolutely dictate all of that and things that are going on with it. So for instance, you know, um, this, this cover right here is a Dawn Matique. So she's going to fetch a certain price that another artist might not fetch. And so that's going to affect the value of the book. Um, and that's going to be a big thing because certain artists have big following. So for instance, there's a guy named Paul Green. People love Paul Green books. And so Paul Green is going to naturally fetch a different price than Joe Schmo from down the street. And so that's a big thing as well that affects value because people bring their following followers in and following in. And then people say, I don't really care what's in the book. I am just a fan of said artist and I need to buy every cover of theirs. So that's one and two. The third is limited ability and limited access to a book. 
you know, if you can only buy a book at a convention, that's going to make the book more valuable. doesn't matter if there's 5,000 copies. You can only get it at one place. That's going to make it more valuable. Or if there's only 200 copies of that book. You know, I'm not going to hold up the book again, but that book that I just showed only has 200 copies. There's 250 people who want that book. 50 people missed out on that book. You know, I just sold that book for $90. And I can tell you exactly what I paid for that book. So that book was in a package deal. You know, it was like a loot crate type item where it came with a pin, trading cards, and then another book that I sold for $85. And I sold that book for $90. And the entire package cost $100. So that book that I just showed paid for 90% of that package. And then the other book that it came with that I sold, I sold for 85 paid for 85%. So clearly, and then I sold the pin for 15 So I basically, and then I kept the trading cards because I'm a big trading card guy. I figured I deserved something out of the deal. Um, but, 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 and the kicker is that I actually had a 25% off coupon. So I got it for 75, but that's not the hit. And then, and then, and then with Zenoscope, you get points. And then I reduced it down another 25. So I really bought the entire package for 50 bucks. Um, I made a lot of money on that deal. Um, but, 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 so that, that's three is that limited availability and then an access. And then four is a specialty. So this cover right here is actually called a medal. This is a metal cover attached to a comic book. So this changes the value. I have this book in a regular edition. So the regular edition is, with this company is actually a VIP book, which means that you have to be a VIP with Xenoscope to buy it. So that also changes the value. So the VIP book is a $30 book. There's only 200 copies of the VIP book. There's 200 copies of this book, and it is a metal cover. So that's also what determines value, where people say, I only want the metal of this. You can see that this is shiny. Yep. Yeah. And so people, you know, anybody can buy this cover if they get the Zen box, which is limited to 200. But you, nobody, you have to be a VIP, which I pay $100 one-time fee with Zenoscope to be a VIP to buy books with them and get points and get documented. They send me a birthday gift, so it's all right. Um, and those those books are expensive. Those books are like $70 books, which is crazy. A VIP is a $100 one-time fee, but if you're not a VIP, you can't buy the VIP book. And so that is a specialty. And then also Zenoscope has something called a showcase, which is almost like museum quality paper. It's 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 not actually the showcase is not museum quality paper. It's a little less than that. But then they have a gallery which is limited to twenty five, which is museum quality paper, and so that all affects value. So when you have those four things, each of them creates value by itself. But all of a sudden, with this, you have Domitique on the cover. I don't know. I don't even know what book is in, is in this. By the way, I have no idea what book's in this. So that's right off the bat. We're scratching number one out. But nobody cares. You have it on a specialty cover that's limited to 200 So that's why this book is a $90 book. I guarantee you that in the next six months, it's going to be a $120 book. Mm. But I'm stoked that I made 90 bucks on it. I mean, it's insane that this thing sold for $90. And so that's something that is very important. And so that's really what dictates value in a lot of ways. So the the okay, so let's the scarcity, right? How do you actually make sure that you are in the group of two hundred that actually purchased the book? 
Oh, they they sell this live on their uh, Facebook Live stuff. Mm. So I just show up. <laughs> is it like an auction, or is it just like as soon as it says sales gone, you hit a link or something, and you and you do the order at that point? Oh, and they, you just type in say, "I would like a Zenbox, please," and uh, I'm good. And uh, they sell about fifty of them over two days, fifty each day. And so I just make sure that I type in my thing. I make sure that I'm readily available for the live sale, and the uh, first fifty people want to get it. Um, and that's just how it is with a lot of these books. Is that um, that that's one way. Also, um, I um, pre-order stuff all the time in previews. But a lot of times with Zenoscope, they have live sales once a month. And so I make myself readily available. And usually one of the live sales is from 6 to 8 o'clock. So I actually will forego doing an interview because they put up their schedule about three months in advance for every live sale. So I make sure that I am readily available for that shopping. And anybody can buy, by the way. At those live sales, anybody can buy. So that doesn't mean... I've been doing this long enough. I know what to buy, what to what, what to avoid, but anybody can buy. So typically when companies do live sales, that's one way. Or conversely, you could go to a convention and you could just shop around. And again, it's sort of first come, first see, serve type deal. But again, if you get up to the Zenoscope booth at a convention, at a con, and you see a collectible, they're going to sell it to you. They'll happily sell it to you. But if all of a sudden you're number 90 in line and it's a long line, it might not readily be available for you because you're number, <coughs> excuse me, you're number 90 in line. So that, that's how I know of it. But I don't know what they're going to sell me, but I have an idea. I also know what artists, because they tell you, say, oh, this is a John Royal. This is a Don Mati, This is an Ebass. They'll tell you what artist is on the book in the live stream, which is also very helpful. Mm. So if you're familiar with artists' names, that's different than if you're shooting blind. And so this is what was very important. It's just like everything else, you need to know what you're doing. So if you don't know who Ebass is, one of the best things you can do is go into a Zenoscope live stream. If you want to buy from Zenoscope, let's say Zenoscope's not your thing. You want to go more major event or character first appearance because i tend to go art and limited edition and specialty covers right that's my jam because that's what's working for me somebody might say look i want to buy a hulk 181 which is the first appearance of the hulk i want to buy when characters make first appearances and there's a market for that too and that's the thing is that you have to understand what type of investor you want to be you know, I, I'm playing in a particular field because I'm making good money in that field. I also dabble in first appearances, but I don't dabble as much because why would I why would I go and change my entire business model when I'm making really good money? I'm making a 52% profit margin on bad girl cover art, essentially. I'm not going to go and say, let me go buy a Hulk 181 in a field I don't know. It's the same thing with football cards, right? You know, you might say, look, I understand, sir, I might understand football. I'm not going to go play and buy baseball cards, right? Right. That's true. Very true. So the 52% margin that you are, uh, that you're garnering, uh, how often, how often are you selling books? Is this weekly, monthly? No. What's your, what's your routine? Are usually selling the books off? I sell one book a year. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
I'm probably selling in some weeks I sell maybe four books. Some weeks I sell 20. Um, also some weeks I'm selling maybe five books, but I'm selling them all at one 120 a pop. So that's the other thing too, is that sometimes I'm selling big orders. Like I sent out a, an order of 750 bucks to Wyoming of all places. I'm going to say something and I hope nobody gets offended. The last place I thought I'd be sending a book like this is to Wyoming. Okay. Nothing against the people at Wyoming. That's the last place I thought I would be sending $750 worth of comics. We could have been sending it to Kanye West. For, for all I know, hey, RuPaul could have been calling and said, I really want to see those comics. He, 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 has, he has or she has a ranch out, out in the West, apparently. RuPaul's husband is a big rancher. I, I just learned this. I'm totally like in awe. I'm like, this is kind of crazy. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew, right? Fun, fun facts with Andrew today. Um. <laughs> Who knew RuPaul's husband was a rancher? Um, <laughs> but the idea is that shocking. I think what it was that I think it was actually somebody who was like, I love this stuff, and I'm in the Midwest, and I have money, and I don't care. Not not the Midwest, more the uh, West, out in the real West. Um, <laughs> but people have money out there because if you have a lot of land, you know what it is? You might have a lot of money too. The person was great. The person's like, oh, because because he bought a thirty dollar comic. And I'm like, can I get you anything else, man? I come by and ship you. are like, yeah, I like this metal book you got. Sure, let's make a deal. I like this other book, too. You got this book? By any chance, do you have this book in your collection? I'm like, absolutely. I was about to list it tomorrow. <laughs> no way. And it was great. And like, me and we're going back and forth. I'm like, don't pay for anything yet. I'm going to combine shipping. I lost five books on the shipping. But, but, but I made like 750 bucks sale-wise. I'll happily take a $5 loss in the short term. On the shipping, but, but but that that so it, it all depends. But I am probably selling about twenty two to twenty eight hundred dollars worth of comics, both on eBay and private sales a month. A month, man. I can't. I'm just. I'm just. I I know that there's a. I know that there's a niche for uh, a niche niche whichever. I know it's one for uh, comic books, right? And I'm just... I mean, I, I should probably revise that a little bit now that I think about it. I do sell Pop Funkos, too, that I'm including in there. I sell some trading cards as well. So it's not purely comics, but the majority is. I would say, like, 95% is comics. But all of a sudden, like, I might sell a $120 Pop Funko. You know, it, it, or I've sold $180 Pop Funkos so, at certain months. And so all of a sudden, it's not purely comics, but the the majority of what I do is comics. So, okay. So just for the audience member who's listening, who's like, man, I got comics down in my basement. Are these packaged, unpackaged? Does it matter? I mean, I bag and board it. I mean, I store it safely. But, 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 but I, I could give you a crazy scenario. There is, okay, so it... X-Men, Giant X-Men 1. A bad copy of a Giant X-Men 1 as a graded 1.1 or 1.0 is a $2,000 book. So a rough condition book of that statute is a two grand book. A 9.8 of that book is like a $45,000 book. 
So, 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 so I'm trying to get somebody to my point here is that let's say that you had some comics sitting in a wooden chest, right? And they weren't bagged and boarded. So this is, this is bagged and boarded, by the way, this is what, what that means. Um, this is safe. And I store it nicely in my comic long boxes. This is actually a personal book, by the way, too. So, so this is mine and it's not for sale. Um, um, and so that, that, that's, but it's stored safely. Let's say that you have a raw copy lying around, but it hasn't been touched and it's in a nice box and it's a little beat up. It still might be worth money. Mm. Especially when you go to the 1960s and 1970s. And so now that's the thing is that I don't deal with 1970s, 1980s, 1960 books. Again, I'm sticking in modern. I found my niche as a seller. I found the idea saying, look, I know what my audience wants and I want to sell them that. And that, that and, and look, I mean, I deal with modern books, but I'm making bank on it. So right. until I'm not making bank on it, I'm not going to go and mess around with that. Other people say, look, I want to sell in the 1970s and the 1980s. I don't give a damn about characters' first appearances. Now, I have books that have characters' first appearances in it. and But again, I am staying in the last 20 years. Maybe I'll go back 30 years, but I'm not going back 60 years or 50 years or 80 years ago. I have no desire to go down that path because that's a different discussion completely. When you go to the golden age, which is a, almost probably 60, 70 years ago, you go to the silver age, which is like the 1970s, you go to the Bronze Age, which is sort of the 1980s. And then I like to play in modern because it works for me and I understand the realm and I'm doing good in it. But somebody who has comps in their basement, you know, honestly, what you, you should go look at and then you should just type in the names of your comics on eBay. So do you ever... Um, do you ever go to like garage sales or anything of the sort looking for uh, comics? Or do you strictly send online and Facebook groups, eBay, however, how else do you? So, so right now, because of COVID, I'm buying right off of Facebook in these live streams and then I'm flipping. Um, I'm in the process of getting a wholesale license, which is a whole different discussion, but that's leaving comic books uh, invested completely. What's that? I had to clear my throat. Sorry about that. Um, but when I get a wholesale license, I'm looking to pick up and actually pick up certain books that complement bad girl art because I want to make those seven, $8 sales when I'm selling somebody a book like this, because the way I can make real money is once I get you buying one of these books, once I sell you another one, it, I don't make the money on the shipping because it's going to cost me the same to ship five of these books as it will cost me to ship one and safely, safely at that as well. What it does is that it saves me a trip to the post office. It's my time. So if I can make, sell you five books and go once to the post office, that's an hour worth of my time, which means I could list another 10 books in that hour, which means if I'm selling book at 60 bucks a pop and i'm listing you know 10 of them in an hour that's 600 bucks guys just 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 to put that in perspective so 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 i will lose a little bit of money on shipping but i will make it because because i now can list an extra bunch of books um but if i go to a garage sale 
and they got a whole bin of comics, and it's 25 bucks. Oh, I'll, I will buy it. No question about it. I will buy that entire thing. I won't even look at it. I and you just start doing your research when you get to the house. Oh, I won't care. I'll be like 25 bucks done. Because because the, the, the risk is so low, right? That, that That's the thing is that if somebody or sometimes what happens in a comic shop is that um somebody buys a collection for in a comic shop and then they put every book in the bin for a dollar. So I've made a good amount of money on this where what's happened is that somebody loved these books and there's all these really cool books in there that were worth maybe 10, 15 bucks a pop. And so I wound up getting like 20 of them. And so they're all buck because the shop seller probably bought them for 30 cents on the dollar or 20 cents on the dollar. So now he's making an 80% profit margin on it, right? I'm stoked because I'm getting all this cool merch. I didn't even know what it was worth, but I was like, man, this is a cool book. This book has to be worth at least more than a buck, right? And then you start, I bought like 20 of them. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, snap, it's 15 bucks. Each of these books on average is going for. Wow. I just made a freaking boatload. I don't know. I'm avoiding cursing because I don't want to disenfranchise your audience, make your show X-rated. I'm, 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 I'm watching my tongue. So this is, I caught myself there, everybody. I caught myself. <laughs> I appreciate it. So, no. what? So, okay. Wait a minute. So I just want to understand. All right. So I understood you said that you can go to like a bookshop and it had like the bin worth of comics. That's a dollar. Right. Or so, so. so I, I'll, I'll tell the story of what happens. So sometimes what happens is that a husband, a boyfriend and a girlfriend move in together. Mm-hmm. The guy is a nerd. Right. Mm-hmm. So now the girl's not. And she's like, oh, you're so nice. I like you. Guy's like, yeah, this is good. This is good. This is good. They're all happy. And she comes home and she's like, this has to go if we gotta go there. <laughs> and the guy's like, I got this here. The bed's there. Yeah. I guess I know what I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> he picks up the box, goes to the shop, sells the box for pretty much 70% off. And then he goes back to his bed. But he doesn't. So you're saying the person that's the nerd doesn't know that their books is worth value. Oh, he knows. He knows. He just knows the bed is worth more value at the top. And, and, and this is, I'm being very blunt when I say this. And I'm yeah. being, I'm purposely saying it the way I'm saying it. Because basically, the, the without all the, the theatrics and the joke in there, um, what happens is that a lot of times a husband and a wife the wife forces the guy to sell part of his collection because if he doesn't she's gonna make him or not give him what he wants right it happens all the time and the guy says fine i'll take a slight hit on what i don't love because i'll cut my collection in half because we need the space right and so he'll take 30 cents on the dollar and then that's how those books become a dollar book but those books are worth more because he wants to get rid of it quickly because if he doesn't, his wife's going to kill him. So, but okay. So that answers that question. But I have my second question is how does the shop owner who's all, who's running the comic book shop don't know how much these books are valued at? Oh no, 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 no. He does, but he don't, he care. knows, 
because he bought them for 30 cents on the dollar. So he might have bought 300 books for 70 bucks, but he's selling them for 300. He's trying to move it quickly because he's trying to make $230 and get it out of his shop as quick as possible. So he might have bought it on a Monday and he wants to get rid of it on a Friday. So this is about churn for the story. But that's the, that, to me, I feel like that's, I feel like you already got great margin. I feel, I, I agree with you there. But I'm thinking to myself, like, if- so, but that this is, this is the difference. A shop is not a comic book investor. A shop has to pay rent. I can long haul a book for six months to six years. A shop does not have that privilege. That's the difference, right? That's fair. That's fair. That's what that's what I'm trying to understand. I'm trying to understand understand so a lot. This is this is why, as an investor, when I saw there was a dollar bin on books that somebody loved, right? You could tell somebody cherished this collection, and you could tell that this person probably had to get rid of part of their collection, or maybe something happened, or maybe they were moving, or maybe, you know, his wife was yelling at him, or his girlfriend was yelling at him to get rid of it, or maybe they're having a baby and there's just not space for it. It's the idea that all of a sudden, that's what happens, and that's where an investor like myself can take a real opportunity to make money because if it's a dollar book for me to purchase it, you know, now it's low risk. This to buy this book, you had to spend a hundred bucks essentially. That's a higher risk. I could tell you on this book, I spent more than a hundred. I spent almost 275 bucks on this bad boy. That's a higher risk. This book, I spent $33. Again, this is a lower risk than the previous two. But the idea is that for a dollar, I can, you know, take take that risk. Yeah, that's that's true. That's true. Because, okay. I mean, a comic shop, if they're making 70% margin on it, they're doing better than me. But also, I don't have to pay rent. Because my comic books are in my house. I guess my mortgage is my rent, right? Or my rent is my rent. But I'm not paying an additional brick and mortar store. Right, exactly. I get you. I got. I get your point there. That's 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 the insight that I'm. I'm trying to. Under, I was trying to understand because I'm thinking to myself, if I run that shop, I'm gonna run these books by uh by at least on eBay and see how much they work before I put them in dollar bin. So I will explain. So so a comic shop functions in two ways. They run also the same way I run with higher end books, by by, by definition, right? So they can do it with certain books, but they really can't do it more than three percent of their inventory. They probably can't even do it with 3% of their inventory because a shop needs to move things to make rent and also pay the business and take a distribution out. See, this is this is what makes what I do very special in, in a lot of ways is that I have a day job or I'm in between day jobs. But when I had a day job, this was not money that I was touching. The money I was making, I didn't need to sell comic books on eBay to support myself. So I didn't have to take money out of the business. That means that I control what price I want to sell. And I could wait on something forever if I want to. I could wait till somebody can afford to pay the price I want them to pay. And that, that's the difference. If you're in a comic shop, you need to make payroll. You need to make rent. So you don't have that privilege of saying, I know this book is worth 100 Let me sell for 100 You might have to sell for 75 you might have bought it for 45 
but you might not be able to hold out for that extra 25. I can hold out for that extra 25. So what's the, um, what do you think, what is uh, your estimation? I know you, I know you probably, you'll probably be spitballing or maybe you do know, but what do you think is the inventory level of um, the inventory value of a comic book store on average? Oh, yeah. I mean, it depends. It really depends. Um, so, so, so comic shops bring in inventory every week. Really? Um, they, oh, yeah, yeah. Comics come out weekly. Wow. Um, I want to know. Um, but, 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 but they also don't pay. They sell for full price, but they pay 40% to 50% off per book. Um, and so, I mean... As far as, as as face value, um, I mean, I mean, I mean, it also depends on how big the shop is. Um, I know somebody just bought twenty five thousand dollars worth twenty five thousand comics. Um, so there might be an inventory level of if we were to price everything out, maybe five hundred thousand in certain shops. Um, that that are small, but it's not the sellable value. Yeah, you're right. That's true. I agree with you. I'm just thinking about it because I walked in comic book shops before and I never would imagine I was sitting around five hundred to probably seven hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of inventory. I mean, I mean, it's also the idea that it depends on on where the shop is and and what books are being brought. Because I've had people and also shops do cons- consignments. A consignment is that I bring in this book to to, to a shop and the shop might take ten percent, but they didn't buy the book, but they're going to sell the book. Right. So they'll take 10% and then I get the other 90%. And so they have custodial ship and that could also be a factor. Um, but it's also tricky because there's books that have sat around in comic shops for years and years and years. <laughs> and so it's, it could be tricky. It could be complicated. Also things have to change. I mean, there, there, there are always books on walls that, that it's like a $400 book and it's not moving. And, and so that that's the other thing too is that it's sellable value. I mean, I have books in my eBay store that I haven't moved for two years, and then all of a sudden they move just like that. So, but again, I have so much inventory at my disposal that I could put up fifty books and not move them, and then I could get another fifty books that move. And also, I have to I have what is known as maturity in my books. So, right now, I'm not selling this book. And we haven't even spoken about grading with this, what, why this is encased and all that shit. Sorry, 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 sorry. That one, that one slipped. Um, but this book is now starting to become mature. This book is now reaching the price I want to sell for, which is like 110. Mm. This book will be sold for anywhere from 95 to 110, probably in the next six months, because it's starting to reach maturity. But it took a while. I bought it at 33. This book reached maturity very quickly. So how do you how so who determines the maturity the market pretty much the market and also the idea is that um so I picked up a book um a while back almost 18 months ago book came out it was going for 16 bucks I paid 20 for it but I said to myself I know this book is going to be worth money and so fast forward 18 months later it sold for 45 on a 20 dollar book so I could wait 18 months to do it you know it's, it's the idea that it took a little while for it to mature and for people to say i really like that cover and i want that cover now and so there you go but sometimes some books just reach maturity a lot quicker 
for whatever reason. It could be the artist. It could be the subject matter. It could be the fact that, you know, somebody's like, oh, man, I missed that cover. I'm willing to pay real money for it. And so, you know, the market determines it. And so I have had books that I've taken five years for maturity, but then it's a $300 book. So, 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 I mean, because I'll give an example. If you bought a book for 20 bucks and it took five years to mature, that is a annualization rate of 43%. Okay. I don't know what stock in America does 43% year (laughs) after year after year. He was about to say it. I knew he was about to say it. You're right. You're absolutely right, though. Absolutely right. I mean, I mean, I mean, there's a few that that I've done it. There, there's a few. Tesla is a good example that has done similar to that. You know, you know. Obviously, if you bought Monster, Monster was a dollar ninety six on an IPO. Monster is a ninety dollar stock right now, which is ludicrous. Monster is like a seven or eight year old company. Right. I mean, I mean that that's unbelievable. But again very rare that, that that you have such growth in something i mean if this book with another book was a hundred bucks and collectively those two books sold for 185 and i bought this book um about maybe eight months ago it's a pretty good rate of return on both those books at a hundred bucks and you argue that fact at all so how long do you think that you that the comic book market is going to be like this? Or has the comic book market always been like this and and a lot of people just go unbeknownst? So so in the, it, it went up for a while. There was big speculation in the 90s. And then the comic book market exploded and the bubble popped. Um, I do think we are in a slight bubble. But I also think that it depends what you're buying as well. Where I think things are overpriced, I also think that what winds up happening is that we're gonna we're heading into a recession. So everything's about to get shellacked, for lack of a better word, right? And so there's a reason why I really wanted to sell this book. Where I actually had this book for a hundred, and somebody offered me ninety. I'm like, you got a deal, <laughs> you know, because I I was making my money on it. They were getting a better deal, ten percent off. Everybody was happy because I'm not a pig at it you know it's kind of like a you you just just to give a real quick example it's the idea is that what's the difference between making 50 percent 55 percent if you're still making 50 percent profit margin but right. you're also selling it and you know you think the market's going to go to hell you know you know and, and and we're seeing it i mean we're seeing it right now i mean i'm feeling i don't know if you're feeling it but i don't know how, how much money you have in the stock market but oh it's been a rough few days oh it's been um, it's definitely been rough even if uh, even if you're doing puts, it's still rough because you still got you still the rest of your market your your portfolio go down with the with the rest of the market, right? Yeah, I agree. I completely agree. I don't know how to do options and puts. I don't play with that stuff. It's not for me. Um, I don't. I I'm gonna basically destroy my my entire net worth in seconds, not not minutes, seconds. Um. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, but I'm a dividend investor and I'm doing perfectly fine. But the idea is that I think what 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 happens in a recession is that I think the next two years in comics is going to be very rough. I think that people who have money are going to buy this stuff. And I think people are going to miss opportunity to buy this stuff. But mm. then I think when the economy gets better, soon be like, I really want this book. 
I'm willing to spend 110 bucks for it now. So if you're in a circumstance where I know for a fact, look, I picked up some, some polka cosplay covers from Zenoscope and I picked up a second set. I'm keeping one for me and one, one for, for, to sell. And I'm going through pain where I'm foregoing pleasure to make sure I pick up a second set because I know in two years from now, somebody's going to be willing to spend 80 to 90 bucks because they're not going to be able to afford it come July, August, September when recession hits. But in two years from now, they're going to have money. And they're like, I'm willing to spend really good money for this. So I think it also all depends on it. And I also think people are going to get a lot more selective, which means that you have to be way more aggressive. And you have to also say, look, what is a good company? It goes back to Disney and Netflix, right? Disney is a great company, right? Absolutely. So, so I mean, Apple is a great company. I don't care what price Apple's at. Apple's a great company. Now, you could disagree with how they do their labor. You could disagree with the iPhone's design. You could disagree with how they price iTunes. But they're a great company because they know how to return value to shareholders. And they have done it consistently. And they are a leader in the cell phone industry. By definition. By definition. So if this this cover is something that will stand the test of time. Just, just, just by nature. This is a good cover, right? My Sasha Banks, and I'll take it out of this. This is an okay cover by definition. It's okay. It's not a great cover. It's not a bad cover. It's an okay cover. This may or may not stand the test of time. So the 9.8 on there, is that the 9.8 telling you the quality of the book? Yeah, yeah. This, this is a, um objective grade. So you can have a perfect 10, a 9.9, or a 9.8 are the three highest grades you can have. So you bought that like that in that case? Oh, yes, I did for 33 bucks. Okay. Um, you, you, you could submit it and get them graded yourself. Um, oh, met them, then you send them, you send them in and then they send it back to you like that? Yes. And, and, and the reason why you do this, this is called grading. So grading is a little bit different where um, what, what, what this does is that it encapsulates it and it, is almost airtight. So it gives it, this is very subjective, this this right here. This is a massively subjective thing. I could say this is a 9.8, it could grade out as a 9.6, it could grade out as a 9.9. Right. I don't know how it's gonna grade out, right? It looks good though, this this looks great. I mean, it's a clean book. Um, Sasha Banks. This is the Dorothy, this is Dorothy. This is not Sasha Banks. If Sasha Banks looked like this, we would be God, man, WWE's ratings would be off the chart. Um, <laughs> hey, that book cover looks better than the Sasha Banks cover. That's what I was saying. <laughs> but the idea is that this should grade out as a 9.6 or higher. Um, right. But so I'm eventually going to submit this book to CGC and have it graded. Um, but the idea is that I bought this book like this because now when I sell this, everybody knows this is a 9.8. So Everybody how, knows. How much does cost getting the graded cost? Um, grading for a blue label is twenty bucks. What's a blue? This cover a, is oh. is a ten dollar cover. The person made no money on this book whatsoever on eBay. Say that again. I'm sorry. Wait a minute. Hold on. Okay. So 
you said uh, grading on a blue label is 10 bucks, right? No, no, no. It's 20 for the grading. 20 for the grading. And the book itself was $10. $30. So basically, you bought the book for $33. And so they basically made three bucks on that whole entire book. Minus 13%, which is what eBay takes. Oh, this was a bid. I got this one for a steal. Oh, they did. They did make no money. Why do you think they sold it so low? They 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 had it on a bid. Oh, so you bidded it down. Well, you you bid you bid it the bid at the highest. Everybody still trying. I was to... I was gonna go up to forty five on it. Oh man, why would they do that to themselves? They didn't know no better, huh? No, no, they thought it was gonna go higher. I bought a book. Sign, it's a 9.6 signed by the cover artist and signed by one of the um, artists on the book. It's a WWE. Uh, that's John Cena on the cover. Not signed by John Cena. It's a 9.6. I bought it for 11 bucks, $11. A 9.6 signed by two people graded in a yellow label. Yellow label. Not this book. This book, I'll, I'll explain this book, what makes this book special in a second here. But I bought that book for $11.00. With ten dollars shipping, and I felt pretty bad about buying it that cheap. Okay, so wait a minute. Let's back up for a second. Explain to me the the different color labels. What's the difference between them? Okay, so a blue label. This lovely blue label, as you can see, it's blue. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's too. It's too easy. I, I you gave it to me. So a blue label is um sort of their standard. Where um it's just a book and um it's not graded. Uh, no 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 it, it is graded. My bad. It's not signed. It's not restored. It doesn't have a marking on it that was not witnessed. So I will explain how grading works. So if I go to CGC with this book in hand, I go up to their booth. I'm like, hey guys, can you grade it? I gave it to them. They helped me fill out some paperwork because I have horrible handwriting. And I openly admit, I'm like, guys, I can't fill this out. My handwriting is horrendous, and it's going to make everybody's job horrible. They're like, no, no, sir, fill it out. And then I show them, like, you know what, sir, we're going to fill it out. That's how it goes. But I, I go up, I hand them the book, and this will get a blue label if it's not signed, right? So now a blue label is sort of their universal label. It's just the book in it, and you're like, hey, I don't want to get it signed for whatever reason. Now, a blue label has a certain value. So... I have this book signed by Sasha Banks, and it is a yellow label, which means that the signature was authenticated and witnessed. How does CGC? How does CGC? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Okay, go ahead. So CGC is at a convention. So there's two ways CGC can do something. CGC, you could submit books directly to CGC and mail it in, right? And then CGC started doing private signings. So CGC at a private signing, they're in their studio and they witness it and they verify it, right? So that's how they could witness it. But like, let's say I just say, hey, I want to get this book. I just put it in the mail, send it to them. They're like, cool, we're going to agree it gets a blue label. Maybe I don't want a signature on it. Maybe it's a beautiful book and a signature is going to ruin the book, right? Right. And, and so, but, but once it's graded, it has a different value. Where I, this book is, in my opinion, worth at least 90 bucks. If this book was raw, it'd be worth 10. So this book right here, the Sasha Banks sign book, is worth at least 150 to 200 of this same book. 
because that's our signature on it. And so what winds up happening at a con, so if it's in, if you send it and it's a signature series, somebody from CGC is going to witness it and then they document it and they authenticate it. So this is what happened with this book. I'm going to explain the signing process. So what happened is that I actually don't know the full story. I actually think this book is a little bit different, but, but, but for, for most stories, here's how it works, right? Is that you go to a convention, they have a writer or an artist there. Now, what winds up happening is that you go and you're like, I want to get my book signed and witnessed and graded by CGC. You go to the CGC booth say, hey, guys, I need a witness because I want Mr. J. Scott Campbell to sign my book. They're like, awesome. He's signing at 1 o'clock. We got four other people. They're all waiting here. We're all going to march over to Campbell's table together. I'm like, awesome. My name's Andrew as I shake everybody's hand. Like, hey, Andrew. I'm super excited to meet you. We all talk for like 20 minutes. Just having a good time, right? It's a blast. But then the CGC representative witnesses J. Scott Campbell signing this book and then documents it so that when we go back to the CGC table, we all bring in our book. He tells the CGC handler who's filling out the paperwork, I witnessed this signature. It is verified. Okay. Because what this is is that this is authenticating the autograph. Now I got a question. Yes. Question is, you take that WWE book, Sasha Banks cover on it, and you go to a wrestling event and you go backstage, you get Sasha Banks to sign it. Getting the blue label, I'm guessing. What did you take a photo of? I'm showing that she signed it. No, they, they, won't, they, they won't accept it. Garbage. That's garbage. That's garbage. <laughs> That doesn't mean that doesn't mean the book is so if it's raw, there are raw signed books that go for good money. Okay. Okay. It's so that, that, what are you saying? I'm saying is it's not gonna be yellow label. So what that would happen is that it would be a blue green label or it would be a green label, which is qualified, which means that that it has a marking. They don't identify it, but it has a marking on it. Now it gets more fun, right? You could have a qualified green, yellow. So if you have Stanley signed but it wasn't witnessed, and then you have somebody else who was witnessed, it could be done that way. Mm. Okay. So now you could have a yellow green label. You could have technically a purple label, which is a restored book. So that means that you restored a book and you fixed up and made the book look pretty. And then you could have that book signed. So now you could have a yellow purple label on it. You could have a yellow, purple, green label on it. I've seen that. Now, this book's a little bit different. What makes this book special, and I don't know if you could see it, is that this book, not every CGC book, most of the time, it's just a pure yellow label. This has a picture of Captain Marvel on it. So that is actually extra. Oh, with the the Captain Marvel logo at the top there, huh? So I paid an extra 20 bucks on eBay for this one, but it's very cool because it changes the value. So there's Stan Lee things that, that have this on there. And also the back is it's got, I don't know if anybody can make it out, but what it has is that it has her symbol on it. I see it. And so so it's very faint. It's, it's obviously a lot easier, but what winds up happening with this is that that's like an extra $10 when you're getting it signed, but it changes the value of it tremendously mm. in this. And so that's something that is super cool in that room. 
What makes this book special is that this is signed by the cover artist J. Scott Campbell and his color Sabine Rich. It also is manufactured with 2149 of 3000 printed on the cover. It's only 3000 and it's glow in the dark. And it's a 9.8 of Captain Marvel. And so this is actually um, a super limited book. And this was done in 2019 in June. As you can see, the back sort of certifies it right there on the back of the cover. But this was witnessed by CGC. And so this is a very cool book because it is extremely limited. And I definitely got this book for a good price. I bet you did. You know, I've learned a lot. Oh, it gets more interesting. You could get sketches on books. Yeah, I've seen those, but I didn't know those were those worth those worth more than the, the artistry itself. I'll, I'll give I'll give an example. I have a fun story of Dave Finch, and then I'll tell my favorite comic story because it's a great story. People will appreciate it who are like me. Made my entire day too. It's a great story, but I'll tell the Dave Finch story. So Dave Finch is a, a comic writer and an artist, and he did a Batman book. So this is what I like to do, and this is my best advice. So if you're into comics and you want to get something signed. I always bring the artist something that they did early in their career. That's like a dollar or two dollar book. That's not worth much, but might bring back old memories and might make them smile. So I'm getting this book signed and it's a 9.8 Batman. And what winds up happening is that um, I brought him a copy of Cyberforce and it's this foil nice edition. I bought it for like a dollar at a comic shop. It looked awesome. It's like, oh man, I worked on two or three pages. I haven't seen this in like 20 years. And a lot of the time, these guys have handlers. Meanwhile, Dave Finch has a huge line. Dave Finch is just flipping through the book with me looking at the book. It's like, oh, I did this page. I did this page. And it's like 15 people behind me. He's like, I don't care. And he's just flipping through the, the entire thing. And then he knows the, the next book's getting great that I hand him. And so without me even asking, he draws a little bat symbol on the book. So, so now the book comes, I thought the book was going to be like a 9.2 or a 9.4. So it was back as a 9.6. I'm like, holy smokes, that's awesome. Now, because he drew a little bat symbol on it and it was witnessed by CGC, it counts as a sketch. Mm. It changes the value of the book. Because he took 10 seconds to do a little thing on it. And it changes the value of the book. And it's a very, very weird thing where I don't know how to explain it to somebody, but I'm like, oh my God, where this probably added 20 to $30 that took him a grand total of seven seconds to do. So that's why you want to bring artists like really cool copies of stuff that you know they worked on that's not worth much because if you could make them smile, they might do something nice for you without you asking. That is dope. That's dope. Now I'm going to tell the next story that's even better than this. So I was at Awesome Con and I had a Batman Beyond blank cover. And Dan Jurgens, who wrote Batman, he killed Superman with Doomsday, by the way. The night before Awesome Con, which is in D.C., um, he was um, at the Library of Congress with a professor of mine named Paul Levitz, who ran D.C. Comics. So I'm, I'm the smart ass. I, hopefully I, I get a few, you know, bad words in here. So I, th- I think your audience can handle it, hopefully. So Maybe. I'm being a smart ass and it's Q&A time talking about Superman 80 years. 
And so I'm asking questions saying, so obviously as this stuff was going on with Superman, Batman was also dealing with Bane at the time. And you guys were going on a big run and Paul Lovitz was sort of in charge. And so I asked the question saying, I know we're talking about Superman, but what was this like really? Because at this same time, Batman was going off the chain too. And what was this like? And did you feel competition on the Superman team? And, and but, but I don't ask the question that way. I said, hey, professor, how are you? Yeah. <laughs> to, 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 to my former professor, me on this thing's being live streamed in the Library of Congress, and and, and I and like the entire audience answers, "Oh yeah, it's Andrew from Manhattanville. How are you?" And, 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 very funny moment. But then Dan and Levitz were signing afterwards in the um outside of the theater, um, and what started happening is that um I didn't have any comments that day, but I said to Dan, "I said I got a Batman Beyond book." Maybe you could throw a little stinger on it. He said, I'll try. And so now, fast forward, not that Friday, but Saturday, I got my Batman book. And I just want a little bat symbol on it. It's a blank cover. He's going to sign it. It's going to get graded. I'm thinking it's a personal book. He shows a big Batman head on the book. Then, and then he signs it nice. Now it's looking nice. Meanwhile, he wasn't sketching for other people that day. So now if people say, oh, I got a blank cover. He's like, I don't really want to sketch. I'm not doing sketches. So he sketches for me. And then his handler was smart enough and said, oh, Will Friel's here. And he plays Terry McGinnis. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm not going to push my luck. And meanwhile, CGC saying Dan doesn't sketch. He, you know, it's $10 to sign it. And I'm like, but if he sketches, it's, you're going to document. He's like, yeah, I'll document it. And then his handler says, wait right here. He goes backstage. He talks to Will Friedel's handler, who plays Eric Matthews in Boy Meets World, and he plays Terry McInnes, and then he says, come with me. So now I'm coming, CGC's coming with me, and my dad's coming with me, and Will Friedel comes out, stops his line, starts looking at me because they see me, and like, what the freaking hell is going on here? And he says, Will Friedel writes, I am Batman, dot, 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 on the book. <laughs> Meanwhile, CGC's witnessing it, and meanwhile, CGC was 45 minutes late, and we almost missed the Dan Jurgens thing. And it was one of those things. And I'm like, oh my God, like this is the story of Awesome Con. And so, again, though, it's just one of those things where that book is really valuable because that's the story that, like, I could create a whole podcast based on just that book alone called Comic Book Stories. And I think that show would be amazing. It's like 15 minutes of telling a story about the most greatest experience at a con that anybody's ever had because everybody has one but that book to sell it is worth a lot of money because where else are you going to get dan jurgens on a batman beyond book with a sketch with wolf Riedel on the book like there's not another one in the cgc consensus so sketches make a difference and it's great it came back as a 9.8 that's 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 interesting because now, how you still? I'm guessing you still hold on to that book at this point. In oh, time. it's it's a personal book. It's a personal book. I am not interested in selling because it's an awesome book. Great, I'm glad to hear that. So let's let's uh let's pivot for a second, right? Because you do you did bring up the uh, uh, the opportunity here to talk about your podcast, right? Because you've been doing podcasting uh, for a bit. So let's pivot. Almost ten ten years, ten years. Yeah, but, right. But, 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 but before we get to the podcast, I do want to make talk about something really quickly about this entire thing. Um, it, what what I do is that when I make an exit on eBay, and I think this is crucial. Um, and then we'll we'll, we'll pivot. I promise. 
Um, it's not a hijack your show, but um, one of the things that that I do with my money from eBay is I actually take that money and I buy stocks with it, and I buy dividend producing stocks with my profits. And following that, what I do though is that if I'm making 25k this year, which I'm expected to do somewhere in that neighborhood, it might cost me 15,000 between replacing all my merch, which I do, and pay my taxes. I take the eight to 10,000 and I buy dividend producing stocks that then produce me more dividends. And so that's something that is why I have a day job. And I'm going to always have a day job because that extra eight to 10,000 is not an extra eight to 10,000 over 30, 40 years. If I put $10,000 into the AT&T stock at $1.11 a year, we're talking in 40 years, that will produce me $122,000 worth of dividends over 40 years. So, 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 so this is what, now I'll be the first to say that, you know, obviously it's going to be worth almost like $6 million, those shares, but now I've created a permanent asset. And so that's what makes my eBay business so cool is there's nothing sexy about it until you start saying, wait a second, by the time I'm 69, I now have an asset that will have actually outpaced my job salary. And then this is the, this is your monthly end Well, your monthly or quarterly income is, is, is dwarfing anything that you can make at that point in time, as well as your portfolio. And so, and so, 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 so that's the whole thing. And then, you know, you, you're creating an asset that could be then inherited. And then, and, then, and then you can do a lot more fun stuff because when you have money, there's only three things you can do with it. You could spend it, save it, or have, uh, or be very charitable with it. Right. You know, you know, you know, you know it's, 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 there are three things you can do with money and, 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 and be very generous with it. And I could tell you, you have the most fun in life when, when you have 50K to donate to whatever charity you want to do and you can get creative in your charity. Whew. And I'm not there yet, but that's the idea. And that's what I like to do with my comic stuff. Again, it's nothing exciting. It's nothing sexy. But all of a sudden, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was seeing somebody saying, I have no money to do my Kickstarter because I'm losing half my income next month because I'm a VA. And I'm like, wait a second, you Kickstarted a comic book, your first run, which means you're not running a healthy business. I am running a beyond healthy business. And I have no idea how I got here. I have no idea how I got here. I was just speaking to my mom prepping up for this interview about this. And I said, mom, I have no idea how I got here. The only thing I know is that I realized that in order to make money, if I buy a book for 20, I have to sell for 35 to make five bucks. And if you take that basic principle, you know, and then look at all that stuff and reverse engineer it, there you go. I mean, just, just to go back to the healthy business thing, it's the idea that if I'm producing a comic and my artwork is 45 hundred dollars and my printing is two grand and Kickstarter takes 10%, I need to really produce like $7,200 to break even. True. And I think a lot of people don't understand that you need to reverse engineer first. And I just wanted to get that in there. And obviously that's a whole different discussion. And we haven't even gotten to level two of what you really can do with this stuff. But I'm not going to torture everybody because I don't want to be here. I could be here all night. I could be here all night. I got no problem being here all night for you. No, I, I like I like for us to like I like the way when your energy is off the roof, right? We always talk. I talked to you about this last time. I talked to you that your energy is off the roof, and it's it's 
it's actually inspiring to see somebody be so passionate about something that they do. But as they do it, they're actually making money all the same passion that they have for something personally. But so, it's it's interesting. I it's want people to be financially free. Right. This, this is this is this is the thing. See, I love it. And we said, I want somebody to be financially free. Now, I'm not saying you're going to be Elon Musk. I'm not saying you're going to be Mark Cuban. But you know, how, I mean, I mean, I mean, having fu power is awesome, right? And I think I'm, I'm, I, we all know what fu stands for, Philip. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But, but, but in all seriousness, being able to have fu power is a very cool thing. Where if you know that you don't have to do something, or you know you have options because you have money, or, or you have savings, or you know what is, if you have an emergency fund and you get into a car crash and you know the damage is only a thousand dollars, you're like, man, this sucks, right? And you could be pissed because nobody wants that, right? It's a headache, but you're not going to be wiped out. And this is the problem. And I have built my business on eBay where let's say I'm having a rough year and I only do, I don't do 25, I only do 18. Again, it's not my livelihood. And, right. and so I have built a side hustle purposely and I am a one man team because guess what? You know, it, it, I don't have any employees. And so I, I can take all the profit. And if I have a rough year, the only person that gets hurt is me. And guess what? If I only sell half my inventory, I only take in half my inventory. That, 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 that's the whole thing is that my inventory and my new accu, accu, accusations, I guess is the word. Um, well, hopefully that's the right word, but, but I think we all know the word I'm talking about. It is based on what I sell. And, and so I want people to understand saying, you don't have to do what I'm doing. You can do what I'm doing without the eBay side. You can go and, and, and do what I do because what essentially I am is that I have created an eBay store to be an accelerant for my stock market because I don't understand real estate. I don't. I don't understand a lot of stuff. Like I don't think I would be very good at running like a deli or a store or even a comic shop. I don't think I would be, but I'm good at this and I use it as an accelerant to make myself become more and more and more financially free and in reality, what I really want is that I don't have kids yet, but when I do have kids, I want to A, teach them what I'm doing, and B, I want to leave them with a boatload of money and a boatload of guidance on how to manage that money. And I'm not a very religious person, but I'm going to use a religious term where it's God's money. It's not, and then I'm probably going to raise my family very much in an atheist way, and I say, look, this is grandma's money. This is the money you don't go to Vegas with. And that I'm going to make sure that my kids are not spoiled brats. And they're like, we understand that you, 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 you taught us something. You know, as a, as a father, whether I have two girls, two sons, a boy and a girl, or I have three kids, I'm not too sure. But it's the idea that all of a sudden, you know, they're going to understand that this is grandma's money. This is well fought for money. And this is supposed to be generational and multi-generational money as well. And this is how you do it because, again, this is an accelerant to create an asset class that can then provide for many, many generations. You know what I've thought about? Like, I, I'm going to tell you this, and this is, and, and, and I don't mean to, if it, I don't want it to come off the wrong way at all because it's, I don't feel this way at all what I'm about to say. I need to create 
a sound effect on this show for 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 motivator, right? Like like just when somebody gets on a roll like like that because the last <laughs> I get I get a little I get a little out of control sometimes. So <laughs> thinking about it, like the last four guests I've had on this show have all dropped motivating two minute spills. That I just be like, man, that thing is motivated. That's powerful. I just need to hit a button when it's over and done with, and just let it rip. I'm giving you the sound clip to cut, man. I am giving it to you right on a silver platter here. And I got no problem admitting it. And we said, I don't get interviewed. And so when I get interviewed, I come out 150%. I'm, I'm very honest about this. And, you know, I don't get interviewed. And people actually don't do pointed interviews with me. It's, it's so bad. And I'm just like, this is why I'm so passionate about this because nobody wants to talk about this and nobody wants to say, hey, how do we get you to become financially free? How do we get the brain working? How do we get to reprogram you? This is the problem is that we don't teach this in, in, in school. My favorite class in high school, there was two, and one of them was macroeconomics because I took to it on day one like that. Everybody else in the class didn't get it, and I got it. And, and, and I can't explain it. Like, my brain just works that way. Right. right. And I and, suck at math, which is hilarious. I think that, I think that, I think the, the net, you have, but you have a hustle too. You have a hustle and a drive that people like you, you're, it's hard. Like, you start, at least we go back to the beginning of this whole conversation. You say that you're out there looking at barcodes in the middle of Target for Legos. I'm right. sitting on the floor in Target and like right next to the Hot Wheels car is like dumping out the entire <laughs> Ain't too many other people out there doing that. You know what I mean? So it's the it's the drive that you actually have that you just say, you know what, I found something that I like to do and it's and it is actually valuable. And it's and that's what sometimes that we get that we learn traits that are valuable that we don't take advantage of in our everyday life. That's that's really what it comes down to. I, I agree. I agree. But, but but sorry for totally getting you off the podcast track here. Like, look, look let me tell you something. I told you. I told you before we started. I, I was looking forward to this conversation because this conversation has a lot of uh, has a lot of different ways it can go. Because you was leading into that, you was about to, what you was about to say was it was uh, you have been done. You was doing podcasting for ten years, and then you have a YouTube channel that you actually started podcasting on right now. But I'll let you. I'll let you run through that if you want to. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I would walk through it, but, but <laughs> too easy, too easy. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so um, I started uh, a podcast called the uh, Pop Anime Comics Lounge almost ten years ago. Ran that thing for seven years. Took a break, and uh, I then started streaming onto Facebook Live. And then in my second year, I started streaming onto YouTube and Facebook, and in my Facebook groups, and I was on Twitch. And uh, I do three to five interviews a week. Um, and then I'm now actually in the process of uh, cutting up micro content and uh, releasing the micro content. And so that's something that's very cool for me. Um, and so I'm very excited where I'm always expanding and I deal with a lot of people in comics. I deal with a lot of people in the professional wrestling world. Um, I'm getting into interviewing people in the NFT world and I'm actually trying to get a big poster artist um, on my show. And uh, I just saw a movie that I absolutely love last night with my best friends. And I'm trying to get one of the main leads. She's a voice actress and uh, super cool. And I'm really, really going to push hard on that one. Um, and uh, I'm going back to really wanting to interview interesting people. And uh, I had some sponsors. They uh, fell through. But uh, I'm actually rebuilding the show to what I want it to be. 
which is every person I want to interview and I want to go on the run of doing the best interviews that I possibly can. And uh, I think if I do that, I think the sponsors will come. And uh, that's powerful because I, I feel the same way too. Like I started this, um, I started this podcast with like an intent at one point in time. And then at a 10, I think I was just like, you know what, why, why are you trying to lock yourself into a box? And I think that's what we do as sometimes as uh, artists, we try to uh, lock ourselves into a direction to try to get what we think people want, but necessarily it's about what you want. You feel free about how you're doing it. And so, that's so yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll go a little bit deeper. So obviously I'm not going to do an NFT, you know, basketball top shot type of guy. But I want to. I'm focused on comics with NFTs or anime and NFTs mm-hmm. because my my show is pop culture. So I deal with a lot of people in the voice acting community, in the anime cartoon world. I deal with a lot of people in the comic book world. I deal with cosplayers and professional wrestlers. So I'm not going to do like Angry Sharks NFT project interview. But somebody has a comic book who has a NFT associated with it. So we're going to have a conversation about that because it links closer. But I also like going into this DeFi crypto space now. And I think it's going to be very interesting. And so I'm actually looking and I'm hitting up a lot more projects that are probably going to drop relating to that. Um, but I am expanding. And also there's some guy who did this awesome poster. And I'm like, you know, is this thing looks cool. And I'm also taking a more Joe Rogan approach where I think I want more interesting guests. And I had a circumstance where I was hanging out with a bunch of people who were beating me up. And they were questioning me and they, they really challenged my confidence a little bit. And then I've taken a step back away from them. And um, I'm very honest about it. I don't really care if they're seeing this or not. Um, but one of the things is that I took a massive step back and I haven't spoken to them in almost two months. And I'm realizing that I don't, they, they weren't healthy and that they weren't helping me. And they were challenging me because I think they were jealous and, and, and not to sound egotistical, but, but it's very important to cut the fat. And what, what opened up my eyes is that I interviewed somebody on my show 10 minutes after I finished that interview, that same person interviewed them as well, right after me. And I was like, wait a second, you're, you're really encroaching on my territory and we're supposed to be friends. You know, this person didn't back my Kickstarter. I was on a show all the time. Didn't give me a chance to promote my Kickstarter. Didn't give me, gave a bunch of other people who wasn't supporting him, wasn't defending him, wasn't pushing out there. And he didn't give me a goddamn shot to even promote me or didn't help me, didn't throw any money at me, but he threw money at everybody else's, didn't throw a dollar at me. So evidently, I've woken up in a lot of ways. And I've also realized that sometimes people challenge your confidence, not because they're trying to build you up, but they want to watch you fail because they can't do what you do. And and it, it, it's a weird experience, and it's opened up my eyes to say, I'm Andrew F. and Davis. Andrew and- F. Andrew F. and Davis. Hey, so let's, 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 let's bag the truck for one second, though, Andrew, because I don't want, I don't want audience members who, who listen to this after the fact, the, the throw questions in the comments and things of that nature – Going in different directions. I want to make sure we. Oh yeah, my bad, my bad. Sorry, I get off on tangents. It's good because you made a you made a point there about you said you know how the person that you taking a step back from has not uh, basically supported your Kickstarter things of that nature or whatever. And I, what I want to make sure we just clear up for everybody is that basically you have your eBay business and that you're investing in how you're investing for the long run, but you like to actually 
use every single dollar that you need from your business to be correct? Um, with, 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 I like to use my eBay money just straight for investing. Right. Um, so, so, so I ran a Kickstarter for, for, for my podcast just to cover my stream yard and other costs. Um, and so I said, Hey, why not crowdfund it? Right. And let me see if I could raise, you know, and I raised $855, which is amazing. If you think about it, um, a podcast raising any money is complicated. I'm, I'm learning how to ask for money now. Super interesting skill. I am not good at it, but I'm going to get better at it naturally. Um, but the idea is that all of a sudden, you know, I said, why wouldn't I want to use other people's money to cover some of my costs? Even if the Kickstarter only covered 70% of my costs, that means that I'm now only having to pay 30%. Absolutely. And so that's the whole thing about Kickstarter. And this is one of the other things that just because people say, oh, man, you're doing like 10K in your eBay business, but they don't understand that. that's a separate business that is a separate distribution plan. So my businesses are not vertically integrated right now. Now, my podcast, as far as a research tool, helps the eBay business. The eBay business helps me find people for interviewing, but that's just information exchange. That's not business exchange. That's kind of like saying that, oh, man, I'm writing you come up with a joke when you're watching South Park, right? Well, you were off chilling out watching South Park and you came up with a joke. You know, it, you wouldn't say, well, my Comedy Central bill is research, right? But it sort of happened that way. I, I think it's, it's a good way to use it. I'm sure you could think of a better an analogy for, for, for that point. I think that it's absolutely, I, 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 I can follow along exactly what you're saying. It makes sense. Yeah, I'm with you totally about what you're saying. So, so that was the theory with the Kickstarter. Um, it's over. So, so, so just, just, I'm going to be running another one in November. Um, but, but, you know, again, you know, I'm going to be pushing out harder, maybe November, December. I'm not too sure for season four, because again, why wouldn't I want to even get halfway there? Because there's no shame in crowdfunding guys. There is no shame in raising money. And just because you're doing 10 K and free cash flow in one business does not mean my podcast is a separate business. So it has a separate set of funding. And so why wouldn't I crowdfund it? And it makes a hundred percent sense. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know if that was the direction you wanted to go in or, or to be clear. I just want to declare it. I didn't want nobody to be like, Oh, you know, like well, Craig has this guy on here. He's talking about he's making 10 K here or 25 K here in a year, but why does he need some help crowdfunding his own podcast? And you make a great point. That's why I wanted you to do is, is clear the point up about, these are separate businesses that you're running and West as the business continue. To I'm, I'm going to throw another tangent in there and another position. So okay. also with crowdfunding is that for me, it was a pre-order form. I mean, I'll be very honest. I last year I did 172 guests. I rejected a hundred people. I don't say that as a point of pride. I don't say that to be mean, but that was one of the marketing things that I was throwing out there and people were very upset with that. And I don't think they understood why I was saying, I wasn't saying it to Brad. I am a one-man team, okay? If I did 172 interviews in a year, that's a lot. Now, I need a method to filter out people. Money filters out people. So, you know, and, and look, I'm the first person to admit it on your show. Um, I charge way too much. I could tell you for season four, I think the, the sweet spot might be somewhere between 5 and $10 for a guest spot. I was charging 20 I think I was charging a little too much. And I think that I'm actually going to revise and find a better sweet spot. 
Um, I think it's going to be a little bit cheaper. But again, money filters out bad actors. And so for me, it actually acted as a pre-order form. Because I need a way, because if I throw up a Google Doc, say, hey, who wants to sign up? I legitly got 90 people. And then I had a spent almost, I think I spent like last year, like 30 hours filtering through 90 people to get down to 20. But with money, I get to that in pretty much two hours. When somebody is throwing me $20 to be on my show, you know, they're a different quality guest. Because they now have a commitment, right? And so that's the other thing, too, is that it wasn't even so much about the money. It was about, I have a problem in finding quality guests, and I need an easier way how to book people. And so I'm that, that that's the problem I have with my season four, is how am I going to find the sweet spot where it's not ultra expensive, but it also eliminates bad actors? So I guess that's the uh, that's the crux, right? Because you do have to you do have to organically grow your your interview, or because you can have repeat interviews, but at the same time you still got to get an audience more of what they actually looking for. So how do you actually go about? I know that you have your own methodology about what you're looking for from your niche to actually interview, but how do you actually know what the, what the audience is looking for in your in your guest spot in your guest spots? See, this is what's interesting actually because. I actually don't really ask my audience and, and, and hear me out. So I know who's a superstar artist, right? I know that I'm going to throw a name, Dolmatique. I, I interviewed the, the woman who did this cover. I know that's going to get attention, right? Because I know she has fans. So I never said to my audience, you guys want to see Dolmatique? I said, look, I'm bringing out Dolmatique and you're going to love her. So, so, so I brought on people and I've said to my audience, I said, look, you might not know who this person is, but in the next hour and a half, you're going to love this person. And people are like, oh, I get it. I understand why he did X. And so I understand that, that I look at big followings with people. So like for, for instance, um, Keith Garvey, I was Keith Garvey's first interview. I knew Keith Garvey was a superstar. I knew that that is going to be a big deal. Moving forward, I just had a feeling, and he was already gaining popularity. And I said, look, let me get on the bandwagon, and let me get there first, and I know my audience is going to follow. Whether they follow today or six months from now, they're going to follow. And there was a variety of other people. But I also say, look, if somebody has 50,000 Instagram followers, why wouldn't I want to interview you too? I don't need to ask my audience when I look at somebody's social media. But then again, I also look at talent. So I've interviewed a cosplayer who has 500 followers on Instagram. I'm like, this person is special. This person is too talented. I've interviewed somebody when they had $7,000. They almost have 90000 now. And so I just knew. And I'm like, look, I'm going to tell my audience. Sometimes you need to tell your audience what they need. You know, I'm pretty sure that you and me had a conversation. I don't know how many people in your audience know who I am, but... Sometimes they need to hear a guest and they need an opportunity. They're like, oh, my God, this was great. I'm glad you brought Andrew on. Because this actually made a lot of sense. And so there's been times where somebody's like, I don't get why you brought this person. And then two years later, they're like, this person has a million followers on Instagram. And you interviewed them when they had 20,000. And yeah. they're like, how did you figure it out? There's yeah. been people in WWE. Anthony Green is a good example. Tegan Knox, who is now Nixon Noel. She was Nixon Noel, and then she became Tegan Knox. And 
I've openly said, I said, look, people who come in and out of AEW and WWE always wind up on my show. You don't know who, when they're going to come on my show, but guess what? I'm not, I'm telling you who the future is. And, and, and there has been more people. I think I've had almost like 10 to 15 wrestlers who have gone into AEW and WWE on my show almost six months before they were in both those promotions. And I'm like, if you were listening, you would understand where the future is. And, and I've proven that time and time and time again across so many factors. And so I think my audience at this point, I don't ask them because I'm like, look, I know where talent is. It's not that hard to spot it. And if you want to be on the end, you got to trust me as an interviewer because you, we, I want the same thing that everybody else wants. I want a good guest and I want a good conversation and I want the next big thing. Those are all great points. All great points. Once again, so like I said, this is why I like, I'll be trying like when you, we first connected and you said me that you podcasted for 10 years, I was like, man, this dude is like a wealth of knowledge in podcasting as I'm, you know, leaning into podcasting more. Why do you think people don't want to interview you more? You know what it is? Um, I, I call things the way I see it. Um, also, also in, in comics, nobody wants to talk about comic book investing. They don't want to talk about the actual book, but they don't even want to talk about the book. <laughs> it's it's like I am a thorough interviewer where, where I go deep down into your your project. Like I have gone deep down into covers. Um, I actually need to interview Dawn, and I'm actually going to reach out because I want to spend like 30 minutes on this cover alone. I'm not even joking. We will spend like a good 20 minutes on this cover. I reached out to Kevin Tong um, today. He does posters and he did a battle royale cover. Um, and one of the things is that I want to spend like 15 minutes talking about that cover with him. And I mean, I'm not even joking. We're going to have a 15 minute discussion on, on a cover. I'm going to have an hour and a half with him. I'm going to spend one sixth of the interview talking about a, one poster with the guy. And I've done that. I've spent with wrestlers like 20 minutes on one match, which is insane if you think about it. But there was so much content there. So what winds up happening, though, with me is that I don't think anybody wants to talk about comic book investing with me. I don't think anybody's really educated in the comic field to do it because it is such a niche. And unfortunately, what happens is that there's all these other shows out there and we disagree extensively on the market and our methodologies are different. And they view me as competition. Like I used to post in all these groups and then they used to just take down my stuff. I'm like, well, what's wrong with my, my position? Um, and then when I'm on financial shows though, and all these money shows are like, yeah, we want to talk to you. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things, but again, people also, I think say I'm not qualified because I'm not quote unquote institutional. If that makes any sense. It does. It makes perfect sense. But I don't think that you're not qualified, though. I don't think that at all. I think that you, I think that you have a unique perspective on how to you look at the comic book market, and I think that's what people has a crux. I think people want, I think people want they think think the comic book market is actually a cash grab. I think that's what they want people to believe. But it it is it can be a cash grab, but you got to have the mindset that it's a long term cash grab. It's not a short term cash grab. I mean, I mean, look, you know, I bought a book and I sold a book even before I got it. <laughs> so, but, 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 you know, you know, but again, most of my money is made within usually 18 to 24 months. 
but I have so much inventory where I have a cycle where I have month one, I bought a book that, that I'm going to hold on. And in 23 months, it's going to be on. But guess what? I'm going to buy a book next month. And then that's another 23 months, right? And so now all of a sudden, if you repeat this long enough and for 24 months, you buy one book that, that, that fits this cycle and you just keep on repeating it, you won't run out of merchandise. It might take a few, a little bit of time for you to build that up. But I also think that unfortunately people, you know, they don't want to talk about this and they don't want to engage. And I also think that people like I've been on shows and like same, same thing that I was talking about that guy that, that I've distanced myself from never even asked me about my business. Cause he disagrees because I'm going to challenge his eBay store. That's the problem is that he's running an eBay store and I'm going to call out BS on his stuff because everybody wants to talk about it. And then somebody else who I interviewed said, Oh, this guy runs a great eBay store. He has 34 sales and he hasn't done many private sales. And it's the idea that, look, I've run a few eBay stores. You know, I just relaunched, you know, an eBay store that, that has like 120 sales, but I do a lot of private sales. I do a lot of other stuff. And I'm like, wait a second, you're giving him credit for running a really good eBay store, yet I'm running an amazing one and you don't give me props. What the F? Like, and that's the other thing too, is that I think a lot of people don't give me credit. For, for, for 90% of what I do. It's, it's beyond frustrating. But again, you know what is at the end of the day, though, the same people who don't give me credit are renting their house with their family. They have no money in the stock market. They're living off the means of their project, which means that they are in debt to their project. And if something goes wrong and their project's income goes belly up, they're screwed. And I actually have cash flow coming in. And so it's very interesting how people think person A is successful, yet person B doesn't look successful, doesn't get the appreciation, but is the millionaire next door. Andrew, you came through here and you have left the whirlwind. <laughs> look. All, all I'm going to say is that sometimes the, 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 the dull rock or, or the girl in the glasses is really the one you want in your bed. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> hey so check this out um i think that we got a lot more to get into but we're gonna have to we definitely gonna have to reconnect again on another one because i'm i'm sitting here and it's things that i think that we did not touch today which is how you how you even knew what is the some of the basics to a, a groundbreaking ebay business like you are like you're doing right now oh we, we might not do that because i might build that on you dammy for 10 bucks instead <laughs> We, you could do that too. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, you do that. I'll, I'll be happy to share it. I'll be happy to share it. I don't mind. I'm just, I'm just joking, but I'll do it anyway. I have to do, we don't have to get a, a, the intellectual property up, but you can, we could talk a whole lot of depths about it in a whole unconventional way. We can come up with that. I'll, 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 I'll throw you a challenge actually. So, so, so I'm going to, I'm going to throw you something right now for, for, for everybody's listening. So I actually just submitted to New York Comic Con. So to do a um, comic book investing panel. And so I don't know when this is going to air, but, but, but I would appreciate it if everybody started tweeting at New York Comic Con getting me there. And here's the deal. I'm going to throw it to everybody. If I get a panel at New York Comic Con talking about comic book investing, I am building the class out on Udemy. I will actually do 80% off on the day of my panel. First time I'm mentioning it ever. 
just for, for if I get the panel, everybody's hearing about it for the first time, so everybody can take my class for 80% off. So it might cost you 20 or 30 bucks instead of like 110 or 120. Um, on Udemy, um, the basics of comic book investing, it's looking like it's probably going to be 20 to 25 hours worth of class right now. And I'm building it out and it's going to probably be ready by October. So if I get it in, first time, exclusive only for your listeners and everybody else who listens to this show, um, I will drop a code. They're hearing about it for the first time. But in response to that, um, when this drops and people are listening, tweet at New York Comic Con. Tell them that they want at Pop Anime Comics to do his comic book investing 101 panel and tweet it at New York Comic Con on Twitter so that we can get there and then we can get 80% off okay, for so everybody who wants it. So I'm throwing it out there for everybody out there. I'm challenging you. I'm putting you into the situation slightly, but I think everybody's going to be happy because everybody's going to get a cheaper class. I'm going to get to be at New York Comic Con. The boyhood dream will be complete. Um, and uh, Sean Michaels get a smile back um <laughs> so wait a minute so i, I want to understand okay so talk to me about new york boy, I, boy you always you got so you boy you got material for day okay so talk to me about this new york comic-con thing okay why is this so important to you new york comic-con is the biggest comic convention um in the u.s and i wanted to a panel at new york comic-con it's been my dream since I started doing panels almost 12 years ago. And I want to do a panel at New York Comic Con because I want I want the moment that you made it. And I also want to be like, hey, look, I just did this. How many people get to do a panel at New York Comic Con? Um, and I want to launch the class that, that I'm teaching for this at New York Comic Con. So I want the media buzz and I want to be walking in with some serious swagger. It's like the Super Bowl, right? And so for me, I've always wanted to present on a big stage. And I want to present something that I love, which is this topic at New York Comic Con and to really help educate people and give people the ability to start thinking differently because I think it'll be a really cool moment. And it's one of those things where it's like, I just want to be there. And I figured, why wouldn't I want to launch my class in the most prime opportunity as a business where there's a lot of eyes and I have people glued to me and that I could actually do something. And then I'm going to be live streaming from New York Comic Con to my Facebook wall on this. And then I could use that to even bolster the class further. And so this is a media play for me and it's a PR play, but it's also a credibility. And it's also how many people get to do something like this. And it's like, hey, Ma, look, I made it, right? To have a moment too. So for me, there's a lot of personal stuff in there, but it's also going to be good for business. So how does um, New York Comic Con typically, uh, or not just New York Comic Con, that's all the Comic Con, right? How do they typically uh, select their panelists? Is it by getting tweeted at, or is it just, you know, who they that's in the industry? So I submitted it, but if a lot of people started tweeting and saying, hey, this guy submitted and we want to see his panel of Comic Book 101, they might start paying attention. They might actually be like, oh, snap, there's a real demand for this. And so if all of a sudden I get on their radar, and, and I, obviously I'm not encouraging, don't harass New York Comic Con, but if they got 10,000 tweets asking for this, I think they would do it because they would be like, oh, snap, there's a real demand for it. So I submitted, but it's also very tight. So other cons you submit to, 
And I've done it at other cons this panel. I've done it at one other con before COVID hit. And obviously when you have a con that has 120 panels and it's not as tight as New York Comic Con is, you know, and not run, I guess, as as tight and, and, and uh, I don't know the right word for, for New York Comic Con, but being at New York Comic Con is very much an honor. It's also very much an industry standard where mm-hmm. it will open up doors for me in a lot of ways. It'll be a good networking opportunity as well. It'll also be a good thing to put up on a resume and also be like, I, then I could, once I get accepted, I could do all these interviews and be like, hey, I want to New York Comic Con as a panelist. It's kind of cool because if there's a company that's up there like Zenoscope, for instance, that does that book, I could say, hey, look, I'm at that level, right? And so it gives me credibility, but I submitted. I think that I have an okay shot, but I think tweeting at them would be great. I'll still give a discount when my class launches. It just won't be 80%. It'll be 79%. So if you want that extra 1%, guys, get me to New York Comic Con. And, and I promise you, I will get you your extra 1%. Um, because because we all want to live in a gated community for the 1% here. Um, <laughs> I digress. Um, but for, for, for me, it really is a business move because it's a good PR move. Because it's kind of like what an opportunity to launch something that actually can help people get into this and actually be a skills-based class. That can help people save themselves hours and hours and hours of research and how to build a budget and what is actual comic book grading and what is exit strategies and really give people an education onto this. Because unfortunately, in this industry, people do top 10 lists, but they don't do the education. And that's the problem I'm solving here. I'm solving the issue of teaching you the skills you need to research and why not launch it on the biggest stage I can think of. Okay, so what we're gonna do, Andrew, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna put that as the pin comment for this video, right? We're gonna tweet it, we're gonna tweet at New York Comic Con to get you on there as a as a panelist. I'm 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 a game in this just because I want to see you succeed. I love I love I love the hype, I love the dream behind it. I'm I'm gonna support just just because so if you only get one tweet, it's my tweet. But if you get a lot of them, then it may, maybe it came from this channel. Hey, 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 I'm going to be pushing hard and, and, and I want to be there because because I'm going to live stream it whether they want me to or not. And uh, 80% off, guys, that's, that's what we're doing because it's not about the money. It, 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 this is this is this class. In the long run, I'm going to make money, but this class really is about getting the skill level up. Now, I'm not going to reveal everything in this class, but I'm going to get everybody's skill level and get your brain working because I want if you want to be doing this. And I'm going to be very honest, most people can't afford my time individually. Most people can't. I'm expensive individually, but I can be inexpensive by selling to the masses. And so I've come up with a solution where I'm like 250 bucks an hour. If you want to go one-on-one with me, it's 250 an hour. And believe me, I will teach you way more than anything else in that class. Um, and, I, and I'll teach you level two, level three, level four of this game in ways that you can't even imagine. And and I'm not going to go any further into that. But if you want the basic skill levels, I could teach you that for like 120 bucks all day, no problem. And if I get to New York Comic Con, it'll be 80% off, guys, or even more because it can be. Because again, once I build the class, I only have to do it once and then I could sell it to the many. Therefore, it's cheaper. If I have to do this individually, I can only I have to teach it over to one, 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 
And that's why I have to be more expensive. So I figured that I want to keep this as cheap as possible so you could actually go buy books like this and make real money. That is. That is what Andrew, that's it for this podcast, but we had a great time with you. I we definitely gotta have you back on before New York Comic Con. And if we get you on as a palace, we gotta come, we gotta get you back after New York Comic Con. We definitely gotta hey, have maybe you. we'll do this at New York Comic Con. You know, you know, I'll do it on my phone and it'll be great. I'll do it like 15 minutes before my panel. Like, I'm going into my panel. What up, guys? Do it at that point too. Hey man, I appreciate it. This was an interview that I was looking forward to. I think the audience is gonna be well enthused and have a lot of questions about everything that you talked about um you didn't leave you didn't leave me jar jar like i did like the first time <laughs> I, was, I was expecting this time right but you have definitely definitely came through here and left the blaze and i'm i'm happy for you and i want to see you continue to do well and keep on keep on pushing on let's keep on seeing good things coming from out, out of your side of the, of the podcasting world yeah no thanks for having me i appreciate it and uh, you know this, this is always fun i'm always happy to be on people's shows yeah, I'm glad to have you. All right, I will sign off from here from the Creatures Podcast. Thank y'all for listening. Andrew, you'll stand by for me.